We're now going to spend some time um, singing before we hear the preaching of God's word. So if I may ask you to please stand and sing, Be Thou My Vision, uh, just a, a hymn that reminds us that nothing should compete with Christ in our heart. Uh, and if there's anything that competes, should take second place. If there's any idols or um, anything in our hearts that look to take a chief place in our hearts that um, they would really be subordinated to Christ. So let's sing together. Be thou my vision.
Well, good evening. It's good to, to be here and to also find out who battles with anger. So I just want to take a photo. <laughs> we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, so please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. <clears throat> so let me, let me read through it. The Lord Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Last week we, we saw that the Lord Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its ultimate purpose in him. And so... Uh, we heard that we are not here to overthrow and get rid of the Old Testament law, and specifically in that context, the moral law. Uh, many Christians, uh, I think, say something along the lines of, or if they read this verse, I think they read something like Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to abolish the law. But that's not what he was saying. The law has not been abolished, but it has found its fulfillment in Christ. And as we saw, many thought that Jesus had a very low view of the law, but that was not correct at all. In fact, we saw that he said that the righteousness of the people in his kingdom must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is quite a, a bombshell. We, in the 21st century, especially if you've grown up in Christian circles, if we hear the word Pharisee, we don't have positive connotations or positive thoughts. We have negative thoughts. But that was not the case when Jesus was on earth. Everyone admired the Pharisees. Everyone looked up to them. The Jews, the, for the Jewish people, they were the role models. They were the holiest people around. Uh, and so we need to try and get something of the shock of what Jesus is, is saying here. So Jesus is saying he doesn't just want an external righteousness, but an internal righteousness. And that's what we're going to see in, in the next few uh, sections, beginning with this section. There are actually six examples now the, that uh, the Lord Jesus goes through. Uh, and in each section, you'll hear the refrain, you have heard, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so Jesus here, I don't think, is correcting the Old Testament so when he says, you have heard, uh, and so then he quotes something from the Old Testament, and then he says, but I say to you, some people argue that he is correct in the Old Testament, that he is 
um, you know, saying, well, that wasn't really correct or that wasn't, the, you know, 100% right. I'm giving you the better and fuller understanding. I'm not sure that that's exactly what's going on because he says, if you jump down to verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So we don't have a verse like that. We don't have a scripture that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Uh, we do have a verse that says, love your neighbor. So uh, most likely, more probably, Jesus is correcting the teachings of the time. What the rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, what, how they were interpreting the law and teaching it. And then Jesus is saying, this is what the law, the law means. One of the things that is uh, very startling is how often Jesus says, but I, I tell you, I say unto you. It was very, uh, the normal practice was for a rabbi to say, um, Rabbi so-and-so says this. So just as, as uh, you know, pastors today will say, you know, John Calvin said, or Martin Luther said, or uh, Mottia says, or Dick Lucas says, or something like that. That's what the rabbis would do. When they got up to speak, they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. Jesus comes along, and he doesn't quote any rabbis. He says, I say unto you. It's a sign of his absolute authority. And it's important to understand here that Jesus is not sort of saying, this is my interpretation. If you, if you ever see a few pastors gather together, one of the things they love to discuss, obviously, is theology. And they'll look at different passages and say, I think it means this, I think it means this. Jesus is not coming and saying, look, guys, I think it means this. He is coming as the Lord, saying this is the absolute interpretation of this passage. This is a powerful claim to the deity of Jesus Christ. I am saying on my own authority, this is what the scriptures mean. This is the correct interpretation. And that's what all believers must strive for. We must strive to interpret the Bible as the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ interpret the scriptures. And so that's an ongoing thing, that we always in submission, that we always come to the scriptures not standing on them, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, I don't stand on the scriptures, I stand under the scriptures. And that's, that's the idea, that we're always wanting to learn and submit to the scriptures and always allowing the scriptures to challenge us and to correct our, our preconceptions and make sure that we are, we are interpreting correctly. Now Jesus begins with, with anger. And then lust. I think those probably are the two sins that people battle with the most. Maybe we don't think of anger so much. I came across this quote from a, a lady called Simone de Bouvier. She's an author and feminist philosopher. It's quite remarkable. She says this, I am awfully greedy. I want everything from life. I want to be a woman and to be a man, to have many friends and to have loneliness, to work much and write good books, to travel and enjoy myself, to be selfish and to be unselfish, you see, it is difficult to get all which I want, and then when I do not succeed, I get mad with anger. It's very, uh, she's very open, very honest, uh, and I, uh, probably a lot more honest than, than many of us. But I think that's the reality that uh, every single one of us battle with 
anger. I think we live in a very angry world. We live in a very angry country. Remember, there's a famous comment in one of the, the Marvel movies, Captain America says to Doc, Dr. Banner, remember Dr. Banner is the Hulk? He says, uh, Dr. Banner, now might be a good time for you to get angry. So if you're not familiar, uh, when he gets angry, then he, he goes big and green. Okay? Bruce Banner says, that's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. And I think that's maybe a lot more true than we, we care to admit. So many people are always angry. There is a simmering rage just under the surface. I think now with load shedding, you can see it a lot more frequently at the traffic lights. It is really ugly to see uh, the, the language and the, just the way people are towards one another on the road. And then you start to see it in shops as well, the way people talk to each other. Uh, and so people are angry all the time. People are angry with the government. People are angry with their parents. People are angry with their children. People are angry with institutions like the church. People blame the church for so many things, for so many hurts. People are angry with uh, political parties, with liberals and conservatives. People are angry with their spouses. People are angry with God, and their situation in life, with providence. They're angry with, why didn't I get that opportunity? Why didn't that happen for me? It happened for that person, but not for me. God, why? Why are you against me? Why, why didn't it go like this? And so there's a tremendous amount of anger. And Jesus comes and he says in, in verse 21, You have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so he quotes there the sixth commandment. You shall not murder, not kill. Uh, the I don't want to get sidetracked, but simply if you have those questions, the Bible is not against legitimate killing in warfare or self-defense or for the government to take life in certain situations. This is about murder. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I think he's referring there to the death penalty. Uh, the government has been given the right to, to take life for, for murder. Verse 22 but I say to you, so there it is, Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, some of your translations might say, whoever says raka to his brother, that was a, a term like idiot or airhead, okay, that's empty head, that's, that's sort of what the phrase meant. Uh, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool, the Greek word there is a word from which we get moron. Okay. So whoever says you moron will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus shows us really two things here. He shows us that this sin is deeper and more serious than we thought. Deeper and more serious than we thought. So the sin of anger or is, is uh, much deeper. It's not just murder. It seems to be that the teaching at the time was, you know, don't murder people. But being angry was not really an issue. 
Um, you, could, you could be angry against certain people and hate certain people. It wasn't, you know, that was allowed. The real issue is you're not allowed to, to murder people. And so Jesus here goes much deeper to, to, to the heart and to our speech. And he shows that, that, is, that it's much more serious than we thought. Notice what he says here. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's what he had just said about, about murder. And then he also says, you fool, at the end of uh, you fool, he says, that person who says that will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay. And so throughout this passage, Jesus is pushing us beyond human courts. Because, of course, a human court can't see your heart. I can't look at you and say, 20 years for you because I can see that you, you have tremendous hatred in your heart. We can't see those things. And of course, if courts started to throw everyone in jail who said, you fool, you idiot, you know, there would be no one outside of prison. So Jesus is saying, this is, this, this is beyond human courts. This actually goes to the court of God. And just doing this will cause you to be liable to the hell of fire. The word there is Gehenna. It's from a, a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And it was a hated place. It was a hated place because it's where um, at certain times in Israel's history there were human sacrifices made to the god Molech. So a, a horrific place. But over time it had become the place of like a like a like a dustbin, a massive dustbin where everyone took their refuse and then the refuse had been set alight at some point and it just continued to burn year after year after year. And so Jesus refers to it frequently and it's a very powerful image because everyone knew it. That's the place where the rubbish goes and it is burnt up. And so Jesus is saying, uh, anger in your heart, condescending speech to others, calling people idiots and fools, and notice what he says here. If you're angry with your brother. And so your special focus is in the covenant community amongst God's people. It's not saying it's, you know, it's okay, you can call everyone else an idiot, but not the people in church. But it is much more serious, isn't that right? When you, when you belittle someone who has been redeemed by, by Christ. And so those two things are emphasized. Anger is much deeper than we realize. It's in our hearts. Now, if you think, if you leave from here saying, okay, I must remember not to call people idiots and morons or fools. Okay, I won't use those words. Uh, you've missed the point, okay? Uh, that's what we tend to do, isn't that right? We tend to say, okay, I won't use certain words because that's bad. But it's still there in our hearts and we maybe use other words. Then you've missed it. Jesus is getting at the heart. Some commentators say the first word, airhead, is, is really to, to or raka, is really to, to, to see someone as nothing. Okay. And you know that that's an incredible insult, isn't it, right? To see someone who's made in the image of God, who is a brother and sister as Christ, a brother and sister in Christ, as nothing, irrelevant. You know, when you, 
Maybe it happens at work or in certain situations when you, you, you walk past someone and you greet them and they just totally ignore you. That's the idea when I don't, I don't even see you. You're nothing to me. Okay? Uh, that's the idea with Raka. When you call someone Raka, it's, you're saying you're insignificant, you're nothing to me, you're meaningless. Okay? I live without any thought to you. Now, what Jesus is saying, and this is what we need to, to really get a handle on, is that the difference between calling someone a fool or an airhead and murder, actually killing them, is not, is not qualitative. It's not a qualitative difference. It's not that there's two things. These are two separate things. I, I call people idiots and fools, and then there's another level where you murder people. Jesus is saying that the difference is simply quantitative. They're exactly in the same plane. Under the right circumstances, the person you call a fool is also the person you will murder. Okay. And it's God's common grace that stops more murder from happening, isn't that right? Have you ever thought, if only that person was not around, my life would be better? If I could just remove that person. When you're on the roads, you're thinking, if I could remove all these people. <laughs> but God's grace restrains us, doesn't it? Okay. Have you ever thought, if, there, if, if someone said to you, if you did this, nobody would ever know, nobody would ever find out. It would never come to light you wouldn't lose sleep over it. There would be no earthly consequences. What would your decision be? And so Jesus is saying there is a link between these two things. And being angry with someone sinfully, so again, I don't want to get sidetracked and, and lose the punch, but there is a righteous anger, uh, and, the, and the Bible has a lot to say about this. But here we are talking about a sinful anger that looks down on people and even calls them names, the consequence for that, the judgment for that is, is hell. Okay. Now, of course, it is worse to go and actually murder someone okay, than to think bad thoughts of them or call them an idiot. But Jesus is saying that also makes you culpable of eternal judgment. Okay. There are degrees of eternal judgment Jesus says that. Jesus says for some cities it will be worse than for other cities. God's justice will be, be faithful and true. His justice will be just. But what he's trying to get across here is that if you hate in your heart, if you are angry in your heart, if you call someone a fool with a sinful anger, you are guilty of eternal damnation. It's as serious as that. So Jesus then comes and he says in verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so he gives this illustration of, of an Israelite, part of the covenant community, part of the people of God who comes to the temple to bring a gift, to bring a sacrifice. Okay, so the person comes, 
and they want to bring this gift and offering to the Lord. And the Lord Jesus said, if you remember, if you remember that somebody has something against you, so not even that you have something against someone else. So that's a given. If you have something against something, someone else, you need to make that right. But he says, if you remember that someone has something against you, stop what you're doing and make that right. So Jesus, Jesus uses hyperbole all the time here. But the principle is this. If you're coming to worship and you're not being reconciled with your brothers and sisters, if there are issues, if you're coming with a heart that certainly if you have something against someone else and then coming to worship God, remember that was a problem with Israel all the way through, wasn't it? The prophet said over and over again, these people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So the principle of reconciliation is, is critical here. If you have something against someone, go and make it right. If you know someone has something against you, go and make it right. Martin Luther applied this to the Lord's Supper. And I think that's appropriate. The Lord's Supper is that special meal when we are reminded that we are united. We all, we all drink together, we eat together the same bread, the same grape juice. It's symbolic of our unity in Christ. And so if you have something against someone else or you know someone has something against you and then you eat and drink, you're making a mockery of that, Martin Luther says. So examine your hearts. Uh, it could be someone in your family. Uh, it could be someone close to you that there are issues with that you need to, to make right with. Um, I've, I've uh, just, just talking this afternoon, thinking about applications for this, and uh, I, I've said it before, often Sunday mornings on the way to church is the time when people are tempted the most to fight and argue, okay? People normally run late in families, especially in families, people run late and oversleep, and if you have kids, then you get frustrated and angry and uh, all of these things. Uh, and of course, the devil wants to, to rob us. And so we, we, we maybe get offended with our spouse or something like that. And so I've seen times where people come to church and they first make things right before they come into the service. And I think there's, that's right, that you first sort those things out, that you can come into the service with a heart that has calmed down, with a heart that is not full of anger and unforgiveness. And so I think that's a practical way we can apply this. But the principle is there. If there is something between you and a brother or sister, seek to make it right. The commentators note that for some people, it was several days' journey to the temple, especially from those in Galilee where Jesus is ministering. So isn't it, you know, that's quite something. You travel two days, get to the temple, and then you remember, my neighbor, <laughs> Jesus is saying, leave your gift there, go back two days' journey, make it right, and then come back again. Because there's nothing more important than, than being reconciled to your brothers and sisters. Verse 25, Jesus says, come to terms quickly 
with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is really actually a short parable. When it starts off, it sounds like this is just some common sort of advice. It, it's, it's very clever advice. You owe someone some, some money. You have an accuser, uh, and you're on your way to court. Of course, it's better to settle out of court. I mean, you, we always hear that, don't we? They settled out of court. Okay? It's, much, it's much more effective, especially if you're the one in the wrong, because if you don't settle out of court, you will end up in, in jail. So it seems like just you know, good practical advice from the Lord Jesus. If there's an issue, try and sort it out beforehand before you face the consequences. But suddenly it shifts. Verse 26, Jesus says, Truly, literally, amen, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus in Matthew, that's the language that he always uses. Verily or truly or amen, I say to you. It's always a language he uses when he speaks about the final judgment. And so really, this is a little parable. Michael Green says this, verse 25 makes it plain that we are on the way to judgment. Those who spurn the mercy of the king will end up not in the kingdom, but in prison. The good news is not to be trifled with. It is literally a matter of life and death. So what Jesus is saying here, if you, keep, if you keep holding grudges, if you keep on putting off reconciliation, you're just an irritable person in the church, you, you don't like this one, you don't like that one, you always have issues with everyone in the church. Uh, you know, I don't like that one, I don't like this person. You, you're never seeking to reconcile. Because life is a, is a journey. You're on this journey and you keep doing that the warning here is eventually you will actually end up in hell. Reconciliation is so important. Every one of us is on the way to judgment. And if you spurn the mercy of the king, if you don't seek to make reconciliation, you will end up in, in hell. And you, you know, it says until you've paid the last penny. Hell is eternal. You will never finish paying. Remember that those in hell, it's not as though they're repentant. They continue to sin every day. They don't turn to Christ. They don't repent of their sin. They continue in their sin forever and ever and ever. Well, in closing, I want to see what the Lord Jesus did here is he went deeper. So the, the initial sin is murder. You shall not commit murder. And he, then he went deeper to say the way that we talk to, to others. And he, went, he goes into the heart. And I just want to close with an application from the Westminster Larger Catechism. So this is, you know, I have a few purposes with this. The first one is to introduce you to catechisms and encourage you to read them. So catechisms are questions and answers. And uh, there's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They made a short one. And then there was the larger one, a longer one. And the sex, they have a whole section on the Ten Commandments. And they deal with every single commandment with what is it, what is it you know, telling us to do and telling us not to do. Because if you take every commandment, and this was said last week, 
Every single commandment in the scriptures you can trace back to one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments. If you want to know a fancy word, synecdocal, okay? Synecdocal, part for the whole. So the one commandment represents all these other commandments that fall underneath it. Okay. So the Westminster Larger Catechism says this, question 134, what is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. Question 135, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. So they start off by saying, what, we, what the, the sixth commandment means is, you do everything in your power to avoid the unjust taking away the life of, of others. Okay? So this is application in, in so many areas of, of our lives. The way, you know, the way you work if you're in a dangerous environment, are you safety conscious if you have staff working in a dangerous environment? Do you care for them? The way you drive on the road, are you reckless? Etc., uh, etc. Et Patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit. And then it says this a sober use of meat, drink, physic, that's an old word for exercise, sleep, labor, and recreations. Have you ever thought that your bad eating habits are killing you and you're breaking the sixth commandment? You ever thought that? Have you ever thought your lack of exercise is also killing you and you're not obeying the sixth commandment? I'm not saying that we must all be gym bunnies and <laughs> making virgin active rich. Uh, but you see, these are principles. What they're getting at, it goes deeper. We say, well, I don't kill people. But you don't look after yourself. You abuse food. You abuse drink, alcohol. Sleep. Do you get enough sleep? You're running on fumes the whole time. You're not looking after yourself physically, not worshiping, not idolizing self, but we are made in the image of God, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are to, to be wise. Our labor, are you working too hard? Remember, we looked at, at uh, the feasts, the festivals and that recently, and, and the importance of rest. We're to be wise in our, in our work, not to overwork and recreations. It goes on to talk about our speech and our thinking. What do we think about? Do we think kind thoughts, charitable thoughts? So let me challenge you to go deeper. When you hear, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit murder, don't just think, oh yeah, well, I, I don't do that one. But what does the Bible say about preservation of life, yours and others, in every sphere of life? Do you think extreme sports glorify God? Isn't that reckless? I think a lot of that is reckless, but probably we've never even thought about those things. We've never brought a Christian worldview onto so many areas of life. And so bring God's word to bear on every area of your life. Go deeper. Now, I'm sure 
well, I hope you've all been convicted. I've been convicted uh, because I, th I think ang anger is what we all battle with from one degree to another. And if, if you're young and you haven't battled with it, it's just because you're young and you haven't lived lo young, long enough yet. Um, uh, I, I never used to think I had a problem with anger as a, as a teenager. But the longer you live, God puts you in situations where you, where you realize, hey, where did that come from? And so anger is there in, in all of our sinful hearts. So maybe you haven't been looking after yourself or caring for others. Maybe you have been using unkind speech to other people in the workplace, at school, wherever, wherever it is. Maybe there's bitterness and hatred. Maybe there's, there's anger that you've been holding on to for decades. People do that, you know that. Anger towards their parents or to a teacher at school who said something. Something that cut them to their heart and that's affected their whole life. And they hold on to that. It's destroying you. But it's sinful. But if you're convicted, and I, as I said, I hope you are, remember the gospel. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is victory in, in Christ. So we can come to him, confess our sin to him, and seek his grace to make it right. Let me challenge you on that. I know what it's like. We sit in a service and we challenge and we think, yeah, I need to make that right. And then Monday comes and we go, yeah, it's, I've confessed it to the Lord. That's all I need to do. Uh, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Don't do that. If there's someone you need to go and confess your sin to and ask for forgiveness, do it. Commit to it. Don't put it off. Jesus couldn't make it any clearer the importance of reconciliation. But there is forgiveness in, in Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we do live in an angry world full of hatred and bitterness. Every now and then it erupts. Uh, the, the facade is removed and we see the ugliness in the hearts of people. And every now and then we see the ugliness in our own hearts, Lord. Lord, help us to see how serious it is, how deep-rooted it is, but also to know that there is grace and there is forgiveness and that you are changing us. But give us grace to deal with our sin and to, to be reconciled, especially to our brothers and sisters, Lord. Please help us to be a, a people who imitate Christ, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And even on the cross, when he was being spat upon and humiliated and stripped naked and mocked. He didn't respond with sinful anger and threats and curses. But Lord Jesus, you, you asked your Father to forgive them. We thank you for having mercy upon us, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us. 
Help us to forgive others and to, to grow in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and let's sing, And Can It Be.
don't rush off. Please stay for some tea and coffee and fellowship. Close with a benediction from Philippians. What we need to, to fight anger is the peace of God. Philippians 4 verse 7. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.